Alright, we continue, I want to continue a little further to entertain this matter of a this Baptist distinctive, this particular Baptist distinctive, that is our doctrine in belief in a regenerate church membership only. Uh, we've already had much to say. We've looked at the scriptures. We've brought defense from the scriptures. We've entertained some of the uh, naysayers, uh, pedo-baptist arguments, and entertained them, I hope, candidly and honestly and openly. I have given you some uh, pointers or places to go to study uh, more in depth than this simple survey course we're doing. And uh, then we have had her testimony, Brother John shared with us in one lecture, testimony uh, of those who have paid the ultimate price for the maintaining of this doctrine. <clears throat> the requirement of a regenerate only church membership. But today I wanted to a further few words uh on this particular distinctive, this is so critical for us and so so foundational in our doctrine, our Baptist doctrinal position, that I wanted to say a bit more of it. Uh, William Crawl, uh, as we have used him in this book, the Church Members Manual, uh, we eighteen forty seven. William Crawl had this to say as to the subjects of baptism. Now, I have emphasized in previous lecture that when we're talking about Baptist distinctives and specifically the doctrine or the the, the, uh, the subject of baptism uh, and regenerate church membership, we I made the point that our great... Uh, what would you call it, our great heartburn, <laughs> is not so much the mode, although we certainly have a very strong position on that and we're not open to flexibility, as it were. But as, but as much as that is important to us, it, it, it pales in comparison to this matter of not the mode of baptism, but who are the subjects for baptism. That's, that is the area where we bring great controversy, where great controversy is brought to the subject. On that subject, uh, Crawl says this, the very nature of baptism requires that the subjects of the rite be persons capable of intelligent and responsible action being enjoined as an act of obedience. It is, of course, binding on those only who can perceive and feel the obligation to obey. So it's a simple argument. It's a simple argument that he brings. But, but it's, it's an irrefutable argument. Everywhere you find in the New Testament the command to, to, to be baptized. 
everywhere, without exception, that you find the command to be baptized. It is also a command to believe the gospel. And then it is a command to be baptized so that the recipient of the baptism, it assumes they have the capacity mentally to do this. It can't be called obedience on the part of one who is not actually for themselves obeying. I can't obey for you. You can't obey for me. Uh, we're commanded to repent. I can't repent for you. You can't repent for me. So this is a very simple, simple logic, if you please, in this argument that Crawl brings. But it, but it is, it, it is impregnable. It is an impregnable argument. Everywhere you find the command to be baptized, it takes as, a, it takes the assumption that this is an intelligent, he calls it a person capable of intelligent and responsible action. Well, the infant, of course, does not fit that qualification. <clears throat> now, I read the sentence again because it's so direct. Being enjoined as, and we do find that everywhere that it is enjoined, we find it enjoined as an act of obedience. It is, of course, binding on those only who can perceive and feel this obligation to obey. There is no command to bring, carry, or force any class of persons to be baptized. There is no command to bring, carry, or force anyone to baptism. Baptism is only and ever shown to be an act of obedience on the part of the person receiving the baptism. There is no command to bring, carry, or force any class of person to be baptized. No one, no one class, not even ministers, much less parents, are held responsible for the baptism of any other class. There is no command to anyone to carry infants to be baptized, nor any example of it in the scripture. Now that's just, I mean, that, that is, that is, <laughs> as much as that sounds like a simple statement, and it is, it, it is not one that is even open to debate. The scriptures do, we simply have no scripture that commands us to baptize, bring into membership of the church anyone who is an infant, or, nor is there a single example of it in the scriptures. The command which carries obligation to be baptized is in all cases directed to those whose duty it is to receive the right. The scriptures themselves, 
The scriptures contain but only one passage which commands even ministers themselves to baptize, and then it is expressly limited to those who have previously been made disciples and who, if obedient, would request to be admitted to the ordinance. And of course, that's found in Matthew 28 and verse 9. And then he opens up, beginning on the top of page 157 in his book, he opens up uh, multiple, all of the scriptures uh, indicating the, the, showing the scripture proof of the statements he has just made. Now, he finally takes up the objects, the object of baptism. The nature of the subjects is proven by the object of the thing itself. The nature of those who are subject, legally subject to, biblically subject to baptism. The nature of those people is proven by the object of the baptism. What is the object of baptism? He says no spiritual grace or virtue is conferred or transmitted by the mere ceremony of baptism. Yet it has important objects when it is administered according to the divine command and received in the spirit of a true disciple and it teaches weighty lessons. The believer is baptized, in, quote, into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, end quote, or by the authority in honor of and dedicatory to the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier of men. So, what are the objects? What is the object of, of baptism? He says, number one, to set forth to the world in a solemn public act, the sovereign claims of God to any and every form of obedience, submission, and love on the part of his creatures, which he may see fit to enjoin on them. So the first, the first object, he says, first objective of baptism is to display to the public to the Pope, the sovereign claim of God, in other words, to give testimony to it, to admit to it publicly, God's sovereign claim to your obedience. Now, if that's an object, immediately that eliminates an infant as being a fair subject for it. Because the infant cannot does not and cannot be displaying their personal, individual commitment to obedience to God. And of course our brethren say, well, it's the, the parent is doing that in their behalf. <laughs> well, uh, the simple fact is that just, first of all, there's no biblical, there's no biblical instruction for that. But secondly, it often doesn't work anyway. They grow up to show no commitment to a willingness of obedience.
words. And therefore, the very act has been made a mockery of because this individual did not, in fact, display publicly their intention of obedience. And that later is proven in their lives. A second object, he says, is to separate and set apart the followers of Christ from the world. And again, that many times proves to be not the case for those who have received baptism as an infant, or what they call baptism. Thirdly, it is to exhibit the leading facts and doctrines in the plan of redemption by the mediation of the Son of God. In other words, it is giving testimony to the very foundational doctrines of salvation. It's demonstrating it in a pictorial form. The infant, of course, has no thought or capability to do that. Number four, it is to assure believers of their personal interest in the divine promises there is this reciprocal effect. It's on the one hand, the, belief, the person being baptized is demonstrating to others their commitment to obey Christ. But then that their involvement in this act also is, re, is a reminder and a reassurance to them of this work that God has done in their hearts. And it's an open and public display of, of that, of the leading facts and doctrines in the plan of redemption by the mediation of the Son of God, sorry, and to assure believers of their personal interest in divine promises. So it's a reassurance to the one re receiving the baptism. Well, it, how can that possibly be with an infant? There's no reassurance to them. They have no knowledge or capability to even entertain these thoughts. Number five, it is to ratify their individual covenant with God. Now, now we've entered into a language that our Pedo-Baptist brethren would be more comfortable with. They say, or, or, or uh, Crowell says that one of the one of the objects of baptism is to ratify the individual covenant with God. Well, the Pedo-Baptist says the parent does that in behalf of the child. But we have absolutely not a word of scripture to validate that. We have not a single example to validate that. It is only and always an individual matter. And it is, it is to ratify to that individual their covenant with God. And of course, only a believing soul can do that. Number six, it is to enable all believers of every language and of no language, learned and unlearned, to testify to the world their faith 
in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Now, here is here is a, a wonderful here is a wonderful uh, point. Baptism in countries where language is a barrier. Baptism is a universal language. If it's carried out biblically and done in the order of the scripture and, and in, in the face of a testimony of a converted soul, one who's committed themselves to follow Christ, even where there is ignorance, this this symbol, this thing can speak. Even where there is language barrier, this thing can speak. Uh, you could attend a baptismal service in a country where you know not a word of what is being said. But when you see that done, knowing what the scriptures teach and assuming they are doing, the, in their language, they are fulfilling the biblical order. You can sit and watch and see it. And you know what it is saying. What the symbolism is. What the typology is. So it is, in a sense, it may be said that it is a universal language. This act of baptism. And number seven, he says, the it is to form the initiating token and visible badge of church fellowship. So by this act, this individual is saved. We intend, it is our intent, to identify with Christ's church and to come into membership in it, covenant with it. That is an object. That is one of the objects of that's that, in my opinion. Now I know we can we can have a discussion or not, but we can have bring in others. I know there's differences of opinion on this matter, but on my on my end, my opinion is that baptism is not biblically administered when it is administered outside the local church because it is it has always been and must always be identified with the church Christ's church and it is intended now we can debate whether or not that automatically brings them into membership our church we don't take that position we take the position that they are voted into the membership of the church, covenanted with the church as a separate act. But certainly baptism is a token saying they have intent to identify with Christ's church. And it ought not ever be just uh, helter-skelter done anywhere by anybody without any regard to the local church. Uh, that kind of renegade activity, in my opinion, 
is 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 completely out of out of place and out of context. So it is to form the initiating token and the visible badge of church fellowship. So those are some, as I say, just some further thoughts uh, that Kroll shares with us on this matter of regenerate church membership. And then finally, on that subject again, to, to finally, uh, Jeter, Jeter dealing with, in chapter 3, page 34, dealing with the subjects again of baptism. He said, let us come then to the common version of the New Testament and examine it honestly and carefully that we may learn what it teaches concerning the subjects of baptism. Now he says that the baptism of John was restricted to the penitent is, so far as we know, unquestioned. The baptism that John was administering, surely nobody will question that that was restricted to those who repented. That was John's message. Repent, believe, be baptized. The scripture says John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's what the scripture says. John baptized, but he did it on the remission of sins. In our opinion, the difference between the baptism of John and that of the apostles after the ascension of Jesus was circumstantial and not fundamental. Now you have this question, of course. Was the baptism of John Christian baptism? I, I don't know. Maybe sometimes we confuse ourselves by the terms we apply. Uh, Jeter does not use that term at all. But he does say this, this. He says that in his opinion, the difference between baptism of John and baptism of disciples after the resurrection of Christ, those differences are purely circumstantial and not fundamental. He means by that that the baptism was to be administered after there was open repentance and remission of sin. And whatever other differences he said are purely circumstantial. The message was fundamentally the same. The discussion of this question, however, would lead us too far from our purpose. And it's not necessary for its accomplishment. He doesn't want to go down that rabbit trail. He says, we have introduced John's baptism and the baptism of Christ's disciples before his crucifixion were limited to penitent believers and the apostolic baptism after his resurrection from the dead was extended to unconverted children and baptized believers. It is not strange, is it not strange if that were the case is it not strange and inexplicable that so radical a change should have taken place in the administration of this ordinance without any distinct mention of it? So he makes a very good point. Look, John's baptism was clearly on repentance and remission of sin. If that were not the case when we come to the baptism of the apostles, is it not strange 
if you're going, if that was meant to include the unconverted children of believers, is it not amazing that that was never mentioned? That there's no word of that in the scripture. If it had changed that radically from John to the apostles, how is it there's no word of it in the scriptures? Then he said, if there was no such change, then the omission is easily understood. If there was no such change, then it was because there was no nothing to say. <clears throat> Baptism is a positive legal institution. It is of no obligation except from the divine will and as that will is revealed to us. The question concerning it should not be what thinkest thou, but what readest thou <laughs> I like how Jeter put that this, the question is not what thinkest thou what readest thou it is what God wills it to be nothing more and nothing less he goes on he says the command to make disciples the command to make disciples and baptize them differs widely from the command to baptize persons and then make disciples of them. You get that? That's the Baptist view sitting in direct contrast to the pedo-Baptist view. I'll read it again. The command to make disciples and baptize them differs widely from a command to baptize persons and then make disciples of them. You see the difference? And therein is our Baptist distinctive. How did the apostles understand their grand commission? Teach all nations baptizing them. Not nations in the gross, good, bad, and indifferent, but disciples teaching them. This was the plain construction of the language. How would the training of the apostles lead them to understand it? They were not ignorant on the subject of baptism. They had attended on the ministrations of John and seen that his baptisms were limited to penitents who brought forth the fruits of repentance. The interpretation which the apostles put on the language of their commission we may learn clearly and certainly from their practice. They proceeded in a few days under the infallible guidance of the Holy Spirit to the execution of their sacred trust. And on the day on Pentecost, the most memorial day in the history of the Christian church, only those were baptized who, in the words of Peter in Acts 2.41, gladly received his word. There you have it. Then Jeter says, in every subsequent account of the administration of baptism, except in the cases of household baptisms, which will receive timely consideration later, he said, in every subsequent account of the administration of baptism, it is clear that the right was limited to believers. And then he goes through, I will not take the time to do it, but he goes through and he 
takes up each of those texts, each of those accounts, each of those records, and he shows right through them the consistent theme. They received the word of God, they repented, and they were baptized. And uh, it really does come back down to this matter of really, really and truly. It comes down to uh, the matter of whether we take what we think or we take what we read. What does the scripture say? Well, the scripture is very clear. Very clear. And I've, I've never quite entertained the same thought the way it was presented that uh, there is no, uh, if there was a substantial change in the subjects of baptism from John to the disciples of Christ, it, it is unthinkable that the Holy Spirit made no note of that gave no instruction of that. There's no hint of that. There's nothing said in the scripture at all about it. And that is unthinkable. That's absolutely unthinkable. So, as I say, just a few more thoughts on the matter of a regenerate church membership uh those subject to baptism being only those who have made a credible profession of faith in Christ. And we may say a few more things, I'm not sure, uh, in the next lecture. But this is such a vital subject, such a vital subject. Do we have any questions or comments along the way? It is certainly not an impossible Connection to make that the baptism of John and the baptism of the apostles was essentially one and the same. Mm-hmm. John came preaching repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he baptized those, it says, who came to repentance. Mm-hmm. The same formula, if you will, was applied at Pentecost. Peter's words. To those who responded to his message, what shall we do? Was simply repent and be baptized. Mm-hmm. So, if there's any difference to be had, it's simply different of pre-resurrection and post-resurrection actions, and, and, and not a difference of quality or, or an essential difference. Or even formula. Right, right. It, it, it exhibited the exact same features and characteristics and did consistently throughout the historical activity that was recorded in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I, I hesitate to think that, that any honest paper doctors would attempt to make that argument now, mm-hmm. uh, though it has been made in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from the perspective of this point of obedience, uh, let, let me offer two observations. One of them is an example, the other an instruction. Uh, 
as part of Dr. Baldwin's biography, uh, there is recorded by himself his uh, experience from uh, the time, essentially the time of his marriage until uh, he departed Canaan for Boston, which includes the time of his conversion. And he notes that uh, just after the, the time of his conversion, he began to search for preaching to understand what obedience was required of him by the Gospels. And he soon came to the command, as he put it, to be baptized. And his initial response, he said, was, that command cannot apply to me because I have already been baptized. That was his initial reaction. Mm -hmm. But, he said, I could not but help return again and again and again to that command as it pressed itself on my heart and my mind. Mm -hmm. He said, eventually I, I, I was forced to the determination that I must reckon with what this command required. Mm -hmm. And that set him on the course from being a historical congregationalist to ultimately where he ended, which was a thoroughgoing battle. Many years later, there is this, I've mentioned William Cleaver Wilkinson a few times now, his, his book on this subject of baptism and as well on close communion deals with both subjects from the specific perspective of obedience. Mm -hmm. And one of the points he makes, which is uh, almost uh, incontrovertible uh, from for Paedo-Baptist, is that he says that the command to be baptized lays before and yet no Paedo-Baptist, who remains a Paedo-Baptist, has met it with that obedience required. Right, right. He said they haven't even met it with the spirit of obedience. Right. Because the command says, be baptized, and their response is always, I have been. That's right. As if, he says, what God wanted was the act rather than the obedience. Right, exactly. He says, the command is still open to them. It can be obeyed at any time by them, but they do not because their answer is always, I have been. Mm -hmm. So they have, in fact, never personally obeyed that command. Correct. And the weight of that, as you, the example of Baldwin, many others, but that, that written example of Baldwin, uh, the, the weight of that presses the regenerate heart continually, recognizing they have not, in fact, done this. And the command is, in fact, given to them. But as long as they supply this excuse, well, I have been, they have, in fact, have not obeyed. And the obedience, as you say, is the point. Not, not the, not the right itself, not the function, but the obedience. 
is, is the thing commanded. They have not obeyed. They have not obeyed this command. And I have to believe that every truly regenerate heart will struggle with that. Okay, any other comment or question? We, uh, unfortunately, in the South, the bulk of our churches, and I'm using that term very loosely, Baptist churches, baptism is just, it's just a thing we do. It's a tradition. It's a thing we do. Uh, Even in our Baptist churches, most of them around, this matter is not given the weight and value that it has. It is one of the only two ordinances Christ gave to his church. I had the experience, I'll just leave it at that, of uh, some few years ago of reading the doctoral uh, thesis uh, that was a doctoral paper that was done uh, by the pastor of a First Baptist Church uh, of Moreland and his doctoral treatment was on baptism of youth and he testified in that document he gave testimony to the fact that he baptized some children so young that they could not even answer the most basic question concerning the gospel, like who is Jesus Christ? What did Jesus Christ do for you? He confessed in that in that thesis that he he proceeded with baptism to children who could not answer the most fundamental questions surrounding the gospel. And his reason was that their parents insisted. Their parents insisted. Now that's no different from Pedro Baptist. You have, you have just, you have just destroyed all meaning of baptism when you lower yourself to such things. Uh, they may as well baptize infants if they're going to do that. And, uh, it was hard for me to believe that he actually owned this in his doctoral thesis for the Southern Baptist Convention and they granted his doctrine. They granted his doctrine. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. It's hard to believe. Uh, but I read it with my own eyes. And uh, so there's all kind of ways. That, so so that I, t- I gave that, that uh, uh, testimony only uh, to to lend further uh, comment to John's point that the that the point here is is that point is the obedience it's not the act it's not the performing of this ceremony it's the obedience and if the child cannot express a comprehension of how that this is an act of obedience on their part then they're not subject they're not fit subject for this matter, we have, I have personal friends who 
who do the same thing. Now, they baptize young people who intellectually should be able at least to understand the doctrines, but they do not require them to do so. They do not require them any testimony of an actual experience that they can explain personally. And yet they go forward with their baptisms. Uh, all of that misses the mark because as John is so well pointed out, the issue here is obedience. It's not the act, it's the obedience. And uh, if you missed that, then you might as well baptize day-old infants. And if you miss that in the way you administer it and teach it, even to adults, if you're just doing this stuff and the teaching is not there, if they even as an adult, if they're not being taught what's actually this is all about, then again, you're missing the matter of obedience. They're not obeying something they can't even, they don't even understand. So that's, that's just as wrong for, for an aged adult as it is for, for an infant.